Get ready for a journey into the heart of Bridgeport politics with In Absentia, a new podcast from Connecticut Public's investigative team, The Accountability Project. Learn about the city's past and present political dysfunction and the systems that enable it. Tune in wherever you get your podcasts. Funding provided by Joe Zimmel and Valerie Friedman. Hey, good morning. Why are there six people outside who say they're waiting to meet with me? So you know how you love me because you haven't had a single meeting with anyone since I became your assistant? That's because every time someone calls and requests a meeting with you, I always schedule it for March 31st. Why? Because I didn't think March 31st existed. 30 days has September, April, March, and November. June and November. Today is March 31st. I know. So then how many meetings do I have today? 93. Okay. Uh, every person's nightmare, maybe. So why doesn't, that's from Parks and Recreation, in case you didn't recognize it. So why doesn't Ron Swanson like to have meetings? Why doesn't he like to go to meetings? I think there are a lot of reasons that are specific to Ron Swanson. And then there are some reasons probably that are more specific to meetings themselves or more generalizable to meetings themselves. We're going to talk about all of that today. Uh, We're going to talk about it uh, with, for starters, uh, Liana Kramer, uh, who is a Ph.D. student in organizational science at the University of Carolina, and Caitlin Rosenthal, uh, an associate professor of history at the University of California, Berkeley. If you feel as though there is meeting creep, Uh, You are correct. Research shows that meetings have increased in length and frequency over the last 50 years. We're talking about business meetings here for the most part, not AA meetings, not Quaker meetings, although I may invoke the Quakers once or twice here. Um, They've increased in length and frequency over the past 50 years to the point where executives spend nearly an average of 23 hours a week in them, up from less than 10 hours a week in the 1960s. And that doesn't include impromptu gatherings. These are just sort of, you know, canonical meetings, so to speak. So, um, yeah, I guess, Liana, maybe we should begin with this question. And welcome to both of you to the show. Uh, But, uh, I mean, first of all, do meetings deserve their bad reputation? I I think it's sort of almost considered to be cool to recoil at meetings and recoil at the idea of meetings. Why do people dread them so much? Yes. Well, thank you so much for having me to talk about meetings because I've been studying these dreadful events for the past four years now. And of course, people lament about them. I do not think they deserve the bad rep they get. And I think unproductive ones, sure, surely they deserve this bad reputation. But I actually think it's become this culture to just complain about meetings. Like, let's just agree meetings stink. It's just become almost like a joke of an organization. You see all these memes of this could have been an email, yada, yada. But really, when people self-report on their meetings and the effectiveness of their meetings, it's like average 70% of people say their meetings are effective. So I think people self-report that they know they need to have meetings and their meetings are oftentimes effective. But a company culture, they just like to complain about meetings. Right. And and so, and we can kind of, we'll circle back repeatedly to this question and the question also about whether or not meetings can be good and be made so effective and useful that people feel less comfortable dreading them. Uh, but I think we also need to sort of like maybe even look at the history uh, of meetings. And for that, uh, Caitlin Rosenthal is the perfect person uh, to talk to uh, about this. Um, as I understand it from your work, it seems as though 
meetings in the workplace evolved or became more necessary as the workplace became a more complicated entity? In other words, I think the example you use is if you've got a shop and there's like five people making shoes in the shop, you probably don't have to have a lot of meetings. But when things get more complicated, you do, correct? Yeah, I tend to think about meetings as a kind of information technology. You know, they don't look as technological to us as a a spreadsheet or another kind of reporting, Um, but they're really a way for rolling up information when you're in a really big organization. And, you know, in one sense, as long as there have been businesses, there have been meetings. But in another sense, you don't start to see meetings as a formalized institution until businesses start to get really large and also until corporations where you have ownership separated from management um, uh, and that separated by more hierarchy from workers um, becoming becoming common. So for example, the earliest meetings that I've seen in the archives that I work with are um, in the 19th century US with the rise of large corporations. And the first meetings are only very occasional and they're very formal. They're shareholder meetings and directors meetings. Um, and I'm sure there are earlier examples in places where large organizations were rising earlier. And now these obviously aren't the ubiquitous meetings that we're talking about later, but they're the first kind of formally structured meetings where people are coming together um, to make these sorts of important decisions that are distinct from the kind of one-on-one interactions or even one-on-a-few interactions that you would have had in more traditional enterprises um, where it was still possible for the owner or the manager to really know everyone he was working with and to communicate individually with everyone. Right. And it seems as though what you're also alluding to is that meetings become, a certain kind of meeting becomes necessary when, in fact, either the ownership of the corporation or the departments of the corporation begin to consist of people who don't ordinarily have a lot of contact with one another. In other words, a shareholders meeting or a board of directors meeting becomes necessary because those people aren't aren't on site most of the time. And, and, and an interdepartmental meeting also becomes necessary because you have people who have, have less of an informal opportunity to communicate. Does that seem right? Exactly. I mean, historians sometimes talk about the shift from workshops to factories when they're talking about labor history. And in a workshop, the owner uh, of the workshop knows every individual worker. Um, In a factory, the owner certainly doesn't, um, but he still needs to know about those workers. And meetings are part of a structure that allows you to have a detailed information, but then also allows that information to maintain a personal kind of human aspect. So, Liana, it seems as though also within uh, within the framework we're talking about, there are the kinds of meetings that Caitlin is talking about right now. There are also meetings. I mean, we have one for this show every week where it's not as though we don't know each other. <laughs> it's not as though um, we don't have opportunity over the course of the working day to communicate. But uh, some kind of task oriented group probably needs to meet periodically just to make sure that everybody's on the same page. In our case, we need some back and forth to begin generating ideas for other shows or how we could do a show differently, how things work. So that's sort of a different kind of meeting, right? It's not about people who have no no other chance to communicate. It's about people who have no other chance to communicate this way. Correct. And those are more update information sharing, idea generating meetings, which also have a place as well, because if you imagine if you didn't have them, then somebody would be in charge of making all the decisions of what you're doing for your upcoming show. How else would you communicate besides 40 
emails long, these excessive email chains. So those meetings are definitely necessary. Even though you guys have frequent interactions, these standing meetings have a place as well. The problem becomes when these standing meetings become redundant, maybe one week you don't need to meet and the agenda becomes stale and it just seems like a redundant placeholder on your calendar. I think that's when meetings also get a bad reputation is when they're redundant or unnecessary. Yeah, and I also wonder about um, how meetings can be used in creative environments. So one of the most eye-opening experiences that I had, it was decades ago now, but I was a newspaper columnist at the time. And I sort of thought of newspapers as a place where because we were not chasing the god of mammon, that we were chasing the truth, that that our meetings were probably pretty good and pretty, you know, goal-focused and all about just getting the the truth out and, and, you know, less gobbledygook. I don't know what I thought, actually, but I thought something like that. And then I went to this, I swapped jobs for one day with a guy who was a creative uh, person at an advertising agency. And their meetings were so much more creative than ours were, you know, and they had this this kind of understanding that you could say dumb things, you could say bad things, uh, you could uh, – I was there one day and they, they had to have a meeting for a client who wanted a new name for a new product that the company was going to put out. And they just said, "Who's who can be at this meeting? You, you, you can be at this meeting? And they pointed at me, you, can you go to this meeting? I said, sure, I can go to this meeting. It wasn't even understood – going into the day, who even was going to attend this meeting. But in fact, it was this incredibly lively, interesting, you know, um, and very sort of creative moment. And I thought, wow, how come we can't do that? How come we can't do that at my job? And I, to this day, don't quite understand how you create that kind of meeting where people really feel free to sling ideas around. Right. And there's some, I like to think of it as a leader toolkit because there are so many strategies and tactics and activities you can do to make meetings more fun. And one can be brainstorming. You can even do silent brainstorming. I've seen where you have maybe a group of seven people sitting there for 10 minutes in silence, just writing down ideas or idea generating or solutions and brainstorming. And then after those 10 minutes are up, they all go around and share. And this generates better quality and better and more quantity of ideas. So that's a fun tactic, this idea of silent brainstorming. You can also do sticky notes. You can do anonymous voting on ideas. I mean, there are so many tactics you can use as a meeting leader, whether it's doing a standing meeting where everybody's standing there or doing a walking meeting. So I like to think of it as just expand this leader toolbox and switch it up. Don't resort to that stale agenda or the tactics you've been using for the past year. I think that's when meetings get that bad reputation is when they just seem boring. Right. Quakers, by the way, do have kind of a general principle that to bring neither a determination to speak nor a determination to remain silent into any meeting. So the Quaker meetings, you know, there's no real plan. People go in and they sit down and, you know, they could be silent for really, nobody could talk for a really long time. And then if somebody has something to say, they'll say it. Uh, I don't think you can run a business meeting that way, but there's a little element of that anyway, just making it all, you know, a little bit more about actually having a reason to, to speak because otherwise people speak to fill the silence and you don't want that. So, Caitlin, you know, when I first, I'm so old that when I was first hired uh, for jobs, I interacted with something called the personnel department. Uh, I don't think there are any personnel departments anymore. They're all called human resources or something like that. Um, and, And what role do they play? What role does the entrance of human resources into the workplace play in, in the just general tone and purpose of meetings? So I think an interesting kind of angle on that question is kind of what, 
what all are we including under this umbrella of meetings, mm -hmm. right? Because in HR brings often a number of kind of highly formal meetings, um, meetings about evaluation, um, meetings where you're calibrating between people working in different roles to see if they should be promoted, um, things like that. So they bring in a kind of set of meetings that I think are very structured and very hierarchical. In a way, they're at the exact opposite end from the kinds of creative meetings you were just talking about. I mean, before I became a historian, I worked as a management consultant and we used to have problem solving meetings where they were supposed to be completely non-hierarchical and we would generate all kinds of ideas, no bad ideas. Um, and those meetings can feel amazing. But if you have a whole bunch of those meetings and then nothing happens, they can be just as frustrating as I think the hierarchical ones. And what I think HR brings for both better and worse is often a kind of um, structured set of criteria for how the meetings are going to work and how they're going to unfold. Now, it also makes clear that, you know, HR is about recruiting, retaining, evaluating talent and meetings, even when they're pretending to be non-hierarchical and very creative, there's always a little bit of fiction there as well. Meetings have an important role, um, maintaining control. They have an important surveillance role uh, over all different kinds of workers. And so there is a kind of sets of meetings that are wide open, creative, non-hierarchical, but then there are other meetings that are really about pushing towards decisions and maintaining control. And both those kinds can be good and both those point kinds can also be really, really frustrating. I think you discovered as you looked into the sort of uh, back the sort of backroom paperwork of some of the early stages of uh, human resources departments here in this country that there was one thing that they were very very uh, interested in at least in the 1950s and maybe well beyond that and so Kat uh, let's play uh, A1 so Caitlin will have something to riff off of It's birthday month Creed's is today Oscars is week after next Meredith is at the end of the month Michael usually goes with red and white you know streamers what? for I have an idea. Why don't we just do one big shared party? What? There are 13 people working in this office. So 13 times a year, Michael gets a cake and balloons and some sort of joke gift and makes a toast. And there are two types of toasts. One is a joke about how old you are. Look at those wrinkles. Blacks do crack, not crack the drug. And the other is something inappropriate, or horrible, or both. What else? He only sings the high harmony to happy birthday. And he is a very big believer in surprise parties. Maybe even, arguably, possibly to a fault. So people like to have their birthdays uh, celebrated. I guess you could almost call that a kind of meaning, Caitlin. Well, there are, there's a, this is something you find often in our HR records um, and also in oral histories of HR is people talking about birthdays. And it's not like this is a large part of what HR does, um, but it becomes established as a tradition that the boss or the manager should be, um, should be celebrating people's birthdays. And of course, the irony of the quote, you, you know, the clip you just played from the office is who's who are those birthday parties really about well in the office they're really about michael scott they're really about the boss mm. whose interests are they really serving they're serving his um and this is part of the kind of tension i think in these um hr efforts is on the one hand they're trying to bring a human side an individual acknowledgement to this often very anonymous situation um, the thing i referred to earlier where your boss um 
might not know you anymore, but he continues to know about you. And celebrating your birthday is one way to bring this kind of feeling of personal connection to that otherwise fairly transactional hierarchical relationship. Um, but of course, this kind of, as this mocking clip you played shows, you know, often these kinds of things can be fairly transparent. And workers understand that the goal here is not so much to celebrate them as it is to um, manipulate. Um, but of course, on the other side, we do like to be acknowledged. We spend lots of hours every week in our workplace and feeling like that workplace is paying attention to us individually um, is incredibly important and can matter for workplace satisfaction. So there's this kind of tension, um, I think, at the heart of HR where it's trying to make the impersonal personal. Um, and that can work if the overall worker relationship is working, if someone is, feels good about their job and is well compensated. But I think in a situation where people aren't appreciated, then they can see that for what it often is, which is just a friendlier way of maintaining control. It, it seems to me, I'm going to have you maybe both comment on this, but Leanna, I'll, I'll start with you. It seems to me that one of the traps of meetings, I mean, every company, every workplace, every everywhere that you're ever going to work, there's some kind of latent mythology about the company. And it's usually, you know, something like, we're a really good company. We do a really good job here. Uh, you know, we're great. <laughs> you know, unless there's some obvious sign uh, that you're in some kind of deteriorating orbit. Uh, that, that's sort of, you know, the message. And it seems to me one of the difficulties about having an effective meeting is, does the person, do the people at the meeting feel free to in any way violate that mythology? Is it possible uh, to safely say, you know, I actually don't think we're doing a very good job about X. I mean, you know, I think we're really actually not even fulfilling our promise on Y. Uh, and Liana, that's something that's hard to do and feel, I think, safe uh, at a fairly good-sized business meeting. Yes, no, exactly. And that kind of gets at psychological safety and employee voice. So as a leader and, you know, as an organization, do you have a culture that values dissent and encourages dissent and alternate perspectives and have a psychological safe organization? So it does come back to company culture because you do want dissent. You don't want to fall victim to groupthink and just agreeing with the leader or the majority group. So I do think there's a meeting culture and the meeting culture at the organization should encourage diverse perspective and seek out diverse perspectives. Yeah. So Caitlin, uh, she just used the term groupthink. Groupthink uh, dates back to, I don't think he coined it, but Irving Janis did the famous book about it. And one of the things he used uh, as a case in point was the Bay of Pigs fiasco. And one of the things that 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 immediately JFK figured out himself, I think, after the Bay of Pigs fiasco, he started asking the question, how could we do something so dumb? We had so many smart people in the room. How could we do something that was so disastrous? What happened at those meetings? Because it was clear that there was a problem at those meetings. And one of the things that was identified that Janice then in his work doubled down on is this idea of you have to have at least one person who feels safe being a devil's advocate. You have to have one person who is designated to say, well, what, what if everything that everybody else is nodding about at the table right now isn't in fact correct? Now, my understanding about JFK is that he made it Bobby. And the implicit part of that is he can't fire Bobby. Bobby's his brother. Bobby's at least, you could fire him as attorney general, but not as, as his brother. It, it's so unsafe to be the devil's advocate. The only person that JFK thought he could have do it would be somebody that, you know, already had an existing blood tied to him. Because I think it's easy, I'm babbling here, but it's easy to say something like, we're going to encourage dissent. It, it's maybe harder to trust that promise. 
I think that that's exactly right. Um, on the one hand, I think Liana is exactly right that culture is super important. And if you have a culture where people can see other people disagreeing and not suffering the consequences, then you can have really push that forward. On the other hand, I think there's this underlying question, do people feel safe? Well, what are they safe? Are they secure in their role? Um, do they have, um, if there's something inappropriate happens, do they have secure reporting possibilities? Um, do they have someone they can go to that's not their boss? Um, do they have protections? Are they being well compensated? So there's this kind of question like underneath this culture of feeling safe, is someone actually secure in their role? And I think that's the kind of thing you're pointing to, which is, you know, when you have a hierarchy, a president in the case you're discussing, or a boss or a CEO, um, it's not enough to just say you're gonna have a culture of feeling safe. And it's often not even enough to demonstrate that over and over again. Um, the real question is whether someone is in fact safe in their role. So if they say something, they're not actually gonna suffer the consequences. Right, and I wonder also, um, and I don't, I don't know that we even have a means of measuring this yet, but just sort of heuristically, I, I wonder, Caitlin, if that's uh, the the feeling of jeopardy may be also enhanced during a period of time right now where the the norms, the conversational norms, the vocabulary norms, uh, the the norms of sentiment are shifting in offices, and increasingly people are realizing that something that they could have said uh, five years ago with relative impunity is much more uh, comp complicated and apt apt to to trigger problems now that people feel as though, you know, uh, uh, that you could maybe have a conversation about a certain thing. Is this a good idea? Is this a bad idea? Should we do this? Shouldn't we do this? That conversation, even that conversation can be dangerous, even if you haven't picked one side in that question. And I'm wondering, I mean, I think we might be entering another period where people somehow or other are going to have to navigate a new set of rules that aren't written down anywhere. I mean, I'm an expert on the past, not the present, right. so I can't say whether things are shifting. Um, but I do think that my impression is that you would see more difference between businesses um, than you would over time in recent years. In terms of some places that are um, where workers and middle managers, et cetera, are really kind of empowered to speak up, have continued to have a good culture, um, and then others where... Um, the culture is more broken and people don't feel empowered to speak up. You know, you think about, um, I mean, this is one thing to, if you think about the difference between, say, an employee resource group that's supposed to be an advocacy organization and a union, an employee that's actually protected by a union may feel um, like it's possible for them to speak out in different ways than an employee that just has an employee resource group, which actually isn't, um, doesn't have kind of any teeth or advocating power behind it. And so I think there's uh, some of those differences between how different businesses are functioning are probably bigger than how that those things are changing over time. Yeah, I mean, Leanna, I, I feel as though there are there's an increasing list of things that I would be less comfortable dealing with at a meeting, things that I might want to talk to somebody about. But a meeting, you know, a meeting is by definition a group of people with different sensibilities uh, who might react in, in very different ways to, to what I said. And if anything, to me, the meeting feels less safe now than it ever has. But that could be my white male privilege talking to. Mm-hmm. 
I think, you know, the way we are headed, that certainly can be the case and may be the case. And I think we should be mindful of that. And there are ways to have anonymous feedback after a meeting or, if you, you know, as a leader, if you feel like it, either, you know, there's some tension in the meeting or maybe there are some emotions involved in the meeting, have a decompress or a debrief after the meeting, have anonymous feedback on the meeting or on the decisions made or the discussions that happened during the meeting. I think a good way to promote or encourage dissent is after the group has arrived at a decision and maybe there is a consensus on the decision, take five minutes to all of you play devil's advocate and explore what's potentially wrong with this decision. So think about the Bay of Pigs after they all agreed on the plan, what if they just took five to 10 minutes to think about what could go wrong? So essentially plan for failure and see what's wrong with the plan. So you can encourage and stimulate this idea generation around what could go wrong. And I think there are ways to encourage that. And I think we should move towards that because as soon as we discourage or avoid dissent is when we fall victim to decisions like the Bay of Pigs. Right. Ideally, they, I think in the Cuban Missile Crisis, they, they tried to do that a little bit more. Um, if I could just add one one detail here, I do think this is something that's changed as of so many of our meetings have gone virtual. Mm -hmm. um, you know, often after a contentious meeting, there is also repair work to be done um, between the people in the meeting. I mean, I've the most common meeting I went to this year was a faculty meeting. And when we had a intense um, disagreement in the meeting, if that meeting had been in person, the people on the opposite sides would have been talking to each other in the hallways after the meeting. But instead the meeting just ended. And I think especially on those sensitive topics where you have an intense disagreement, um, everything seems to be sort of personal on Zoom. Um, but in fact, you're missing the before and the after where the kind of individual connections can be made that do repair some of the kind of disconnect. I agree with you 1000% about that. I found it, and I'm sure you did too, if you were teaching seminars too. I mean, a seminar in a way is a kind of meeting. You know, it's 15 people getting together to talk about something uh, or however many people are in your seminar. And I think, you know, in, in those situations and in meetings, there's kind of a weather system that builds up in the room. Even before you get out in the hall, there's a kind of discernible weather system that you can just sort of pick up through body language, breath, uh, rustling around, <laughs> you know, you can sort of tell how people are processing stuff and maybe alter what you say, or, or you can just realize how close you are to get to maybe, you know, pissing somebody off or getting in trouble with somebody. I found my students in the seminars were much more reluctant uh, to take a, a possibly contrarian position for, for the reason that you're saying that they, first of all, wouldn't know right before they hit the rocks. And once they hit the rocks, they wouldn't know how to repair the situation because we're all sitting in little boxes. Um, all right. Well, maybe, <laughs> maybe that's a good conversation stopper. Lily Tyson, who's producing the show, wants me to go to a break. Anyway, let's do that and then we'll come back. However we want, the Virginians emerge with the nation's capital. And here's the pièce de résistance. No one else was in the room where it happened. The room where it happened. The room where it happened. No one else was in the room where it happened. The room where it happened. The room where it happened. No one really knows how the game is played. The art of the trade are the sausages. Support for this podcast comes from Hartford Healthcare. Elevating Health is funded by Hartford Healthcare. ECMO is a leading-edge, life-saving treatment for patients with cardiac or respiratory failure. Dr. Jason Gluck, director of the Mechanical Circulatory Support Program and Emergency Cardiac Care at Hartford Hospital, explains what it is. So ECMO stands for extracorporeal membrane oxygenation, outside the body oxygenation of blood. It's a life support technique that's used by highly sophisticated medical systems for patients with severe heart or lung failure. 
The technique involves removing blood from the body, oxygening it, and then returning it back. ECMO procedures happen in the ICU, but not all hospitals are equipped with the necessary technology and staff. Dr. Gluck describes Hartford Hospital's ECMO Go team. So ECMO is considered when treatments have failed, and in our center, with a special ECMO on the go team, we'll actually take that technology to their hospital and help them out there if they need to to stabilize the patient and then bring them back to heart for recovery. For more information, go to ctpublic.org slash health. I'm Bassini. I want to thank you for helping me organize this meeting here today. And also the other heads of the five families in New York, New Jersey. <coughs> Carmine Cuneo from the Bronx and uh, from Brooklyn. <coughs> Philip Tatali <coughs> from Staten Island. We have with us. Uh, Victor Strachey and all the other associates who came as far as from California, Kansas City, and all the other territories of the country. Thank you. All right. I don't. I hope I don't need to tell people <laughs> where that clip is from. We're doing a show today about meetings, uh, and uh, we're doing it right now with Liana Kramer, uh, who is a PhD student in organizational science uh, at the University of California, uh, University of North Carolina. I don't know what's wrong with my brain today. Uh, Caitlin Rosenthal is an associate professor of history at the University of California, Berkeley. Um, so. Uh, um, Caitlin, I think you might have been the person who said this in the first segment. But just to go back to that clip. So I actually did a poll on Facebook today about that clip or about that meeting saying that, you know, there are certain things that uh, Don Vito Corleone appears to be trying to get done at that meeting, uh, forbidding people to kill his son, Michael, telling people he doesn't want to go into the narcotics business. But I actually think what he's doing there at that meeting like 90% of what he's doing in even calling that meeting is he wants to look at everybody and assess them. He wants to sort of get a sense of a, a sense of the room. He wants to read the room and the table and the people around the table. And Caitlin, I think you said something to that effect that one reason people call meetings is they want to see all those people uh, just to kind of take their temperatures. There's something about um, seeing people in person that I think allows people to feel and to actually be able to um, push the answer to questions that they could get otherwise. Um, so, I mean, one of the things that I mentioned at the beginning of the segment was, you know, as businesses get bigger, you, uh, you start to need more of these formal meetings. You know, one of the kind of historical organizational thinkers is Daniel McCallum, who's a super, who works on the New York and Erie Railroad. And one of the things he says is, you know, on a small railroad, the one superintendent can have in his mind how everything works and he knows everyone and can do everything. But as the railroad gets massive and complicated, um, he needs this formalized system of reporting. So what he needs in McCallum's view is checks and checks and data to make sure things are running and a big system. But the system also isn't enough. So what he needs to do is to have that system, but also to pull people, key people in front of him and to hold them accountable for the data. So, and this is the kinds of things that you see in like my husband's firm calls them quarterly business reviews. They, everyone coming into the room and they've already shared the data, they've already shared the information, but the information isn't enough. And he needs them there in person to push and question um, to, which is partly about moving things forward and problem solving, but it's also about um, 
getting a sense of people individually, where they are, and in a sense, um, providing kind of surveillance so you can figure out how much you should trust the information you're getting through your more formal channels. Perfectly, perfectly expressed. So, Liana, I think that we know that during COVID, once people once people figure out how to use a technology and they figure out that it's easy, they use it a lot. Um, so, so once people got the hang of Zoom, uh, there were a lot more meetings. But I think you're telling us that it appears that the meetings were shorter, right? There's there's a way in which even going back to the godfather of the meeting of the five families, well, if you're going to get all these people together, you can't just talk to them for 20 minutes and adjourn and say, thanks for coming out here. There's sort of a sense that the meeting has to go on to a certain length because you made everybody show up and get into this room and you got beverages for them and snacks and stuff like that. Whereas I would assume the nice thing about a Zoom meeting is it it's a little bit more gross gorilla you could just sort of you know get in and get out fast yeah no exactly so the data shows that you know meeting quantity has increased over the past year and a half with this switch to virtual meetings but the length of the meetings has decreased and i think part of it is yes you know you don't have that cooler talk you don't have time for or it's not as natural to have organic conversations for 10 minutes of catch-up talk before the meeting begins. And of course, if you call the meeting and you have that meeting space for an hour, you're going to utilize that whole hour, which might not be the best thing anyway. But in a virtual setting, as soon as you go through the agenda and you come up with your decisions, the meeting can adjourn early. And I think Zoom fatigue has been this very popular phenomenon. I'm sure you've read about it, heard about it, seen it on social media, on HBR. So Zoom fatigue, people get tired sitting in meetings and the screen time that they're exposed to with these virtual meetings. So yes, meeting quantity has increased, but the length of them has decreased. Okay, so, you know, it would be remiss if we did not just talk about sort of the difference between good and bad and, and tips for good. So I'll, I'll start with you, Caitlin, if you were going to advise, and I realize there's no shoe that fits all the feet here, because the meetings exist, as we've, we've been saying straight along, for different purposes. But are there some general rules of thumb that will help you have a good meeting? I mean, number one, and this is not through my historian's expertise, this is personal experience is that the meeting has to have a clear purpose. Mm -hmm. um, I think sometimes it doesn't mean it has to have a detailed agenda. And sometimes that can go too far, especially if it could be, you know, one of these 15 or 20 minute meetings where you're in and you're out. Uh, but if you don't have a clear purpose for the meeting, then the meeting is not going to go anywhere. I mean, one of the best things that happened to me this spring was that uh, our, our department chair canceled a whole bunch of faculty meetings because they decided we didn't need them. And when you, don't have a kind of clear thing and you have a lot of people in the room, people can find something to talk about. Um, but it gets incredibly frustrating. Um, Leanna, how about you? What are some uh, tips for good meetings? You know, I second what Caitlin's saying is be intentional. Be intentional with why you're calling the meeting, the goals, the outcomes, what you want to result from the meeting, who you're inviting to the meeting, how long the meeting is. Evaluate if you even need the meeting. So I think as a leader, just be intentional with how you design your meeting, how you facilitate your meeting, and then how you end your meeting. I think it's very important to get feedback from your team. So if you think that leaders spend 50% of their time leading meetings, they for sure should be evaluating the quality of their meeting and how satisfied their employees are with their team meetings. It should 100% be included on their performance evaluation of how good they are at leading these meetings. I think just asking for that feedback and being intentional and caring is the number one facet to leading good meetings. 
Yeah, and you know, Liana, we kind of touched on this in the first segment, but maybe say a little bit more about it. There's also that question of should everybody participate? I mean, there's one problem, which is that if you encourage participation, um, the first person who's going to leap at that opportunity is the person who talks too much anyway and maybe has some peculiar axe to grind or, or bizarre way of thinking about a lot of stuff and can't stop talking about it. Uh, and on the other hand, there may be somebody who's incredibly reticent uh, who doesn't like talking at meetings anyway. Is it important to get that person to talk or should we just follow the Quaker model and let them decide? No. So I think depending on the meeting's goal. So if it really is a brainstorming and you want diverse perspectives and equal participation, then yes, you should encourage those more introverted or lower status voices, which is why leveraging this silent brainstorming approach or having people generate ideas on their own before they come to the meeting and having a way to hear all voices and not just letting the more dominant voices be heard. If it's a decision-making and brainstorming meeting, then you want diverse perspectives. Now, I'm not saying that every meeting is supposed to operate that way. So there are some meetings where maybe the leader will talk more. It's more a delegating task type of meeting. But if it is a brainstorming meeting and you are truly seeking diverse perspectives, I think it's important to have equal participation from all important voices. Caitlin Rosenthal, as a historian, um, it must be sort of frustrating at times to want to, if you want to study meetings, right? Certain meetings are governed to a certain degree by uh, FOI laws, uh, if they're of government agencies. Um, on the other hand, it's not necessarily the case that you'll find out everything that happened at that meeting. I mean, I was thinking about this getting ready for the show and like, I want to know about the meetings at Volkswagen when they wound up deciding to put that, you know, emissions detection uh, defeating thing in the cars and got in all this kind of trouble, practically brought the company to its knees. Like, I really want to know, like, who was at the meetings? Like, Did they discuss it? Did they say, let's do it anyway and hope we don't get caught? And I mean, the kinds of meetings that you might want to study must be very, very hard to get access to. Well, the first thing I said when um, someone asked, invited me to talk about meetings with them was, I'm not really an expert on meetings. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's pretty hard to find a historian of meetings. And I think a lot of that's to do with how archives work. Um, Some things get saved from meetings. They are agendas and minutes, but we all know from being in agenda uh, meetings that agendas and and minutes don't often tell you the interesting things about what actually unfolded in the meeting. Mm -hmm. They don't tell you the personal aspects. They don't give you the smoking gun of how this like outrageous decision was arrived at. Um, And so when I've studied information and technology systems in the past, I've tended to write about accounting. I've written about um, spreadsheets and data and all the kinds of things that leave behind written records. Um, Whereas you don't have, um, except for anecdotally, the same kind of paper trail for for meetings. Now, it's an interesting question whether Zoom is going to change that. You know, we've all now been on meetings that are recorded. I've never gone back and watched one, nor do I ever really want to. Um, But that may radically change the way kind of historians are able to think about kind of what actually happens in meetings. When I was an undergraduate in college, we actually had gotten access to the recently declassified papers regarding the decision to use uh, atomic weapons against Japan. And there was no record of a meeting where they where, you know, Roosevelt and his team said, OK, we're going to do it. <laughs> you just couldn't find it. I mean, it didn't whatever whenever that happened, however they did it, they just, you know, and you'd want to know like how things got discussed at that meeting. But no. Uh, All right. Well, listen, this has been fun to uh, talk to uh, both of you about. Uh, Leanna Kramer is a Ph.D. student in organizational science at the University of North Carolina. Caitlin Rosenthal is an associate professor of history.
history at the University of California, Berkeley. We're going to take a break. We're going to talk about the other kind of, well, one of the other kinds of meetings that you can have, and that is, in fact, the office party. I'm losing my mind just a little. So why don't you just meet me in the middle? In the middle, no, no, baby. Why don't you just meet me in the middle? I'm All right. Now, first of all, I have to thank. Uh, People that I meet with once a week, Kat Pastor is the technical producer. She's sitting on the other side of the glass from me right now. Lily Tyson, celebrity producer Lily Tyson, is the producer of this particular episode. Uh, so thanks very much to both of them. So now we're going to talk about – I don't know that this is actually qualifies as a meeting uh, or maybe it is. Maybe it's just sort of a meeting with alcohol. Uh, but neither fish nor fowl. It's the office party. Uh, here to talk about it is uh, Rachel Sugar, a staff writer for Grub Street, New York Magazine's food blog. Uh, before we bring Rachel into the conversation, let's turn once again to the uh, American version of the series, The Office, uh, to r- remind everybody the amount of angst that goes into planning office parties. Basically, after Phil's blackmailed Angela, Michael asked them both to step down from the party planning committee because there was too much drama. What he said was easy. there was a problem with having one head of the party planning committee. She becomes too powerful, so he appointed two heads. Party planning? This is literally the stupidest thing ever done. humiliating. <laughs> All right. So, Rachel, you wrote about uh, office parties for New York Magazine. Uh, give us a little sense of the history of the office party. the history of the office party um but it seems like it's to start the 20th century where uh, you know Rachel I'm just going to interrupt you you're getting sort of a thing here with where you're a little bit muffled uh, for some of the time so I, what I, what we'll do is I'll have either Kat or Lily talk to you for a second maybe we can sort of figure out what's going on and while that's happening uh, I'll try to vamp a little bit on this topic which I can do because I've been to a lot of office parties uh, and so I do think that one of the there's a couple of problems with office parties and, and one of them of course is uh, and I think this is something that Rachel is going to um, talk a little bit about it when she comes back to us. But there there have been changing mores, you know? I mean, there was a time when it was kind of understood that people would just get hammered at the annual office party, the Christmas party, whatever it was, the holiday party, that that was sort of, uh, it was understood that maybe some of the norms, of course, if you watched Mad Men, you also realized that was a time when it was also understood that you might get hammered during the workday itself uh, while you were out at lunch, whatever. But the more and more that the workplace kind of got cleaned up in that regard, the more problematic and dubious the office party is, you know, is it a place where the normal rules don't apply? Is it a place where, or is that kind of a trap? Is it the case that the, if you violate the normal rules on that particular night and come into work on the following Monday morning, you'll be a leper or a pariah? Uh, and I don't think that's ever very well spelled out. And it's sort of incumbent on the people who are the party planners to figure out, you know, how you avoid those kinds of situations. Let's go back to Rachel and see if we, we've uh, sorted out that mic problem. Uh, all right. Hi, Rachel. Is this any better? That's a little better, yeah. So give us a little more sense of the history. So we're looking probably at the 
century, um, where you're actually looking at factory work and factory owners who are throwing these sort of to up, keep people from leaving, um, and and sort of this paternalistic sense of uh, we are we take care of you, and and we provide not only work and but we provide sort of the social infrastructure for your life. We we provide picnics, barbecues skating rinks. Um, and I think that might be the place where we can sort of locate the beginning of the office party. Yeah. So the, there is, uh, we're still having a little bit of a tech problem here. So stay on mic or on your, uh, close to your mic as you possibly can while we do this. But um, so, yeah, so there was this kind of idea that was sort of built into the office environment. I think this is like really true 50s, 60s, once again, we're sort of in that Mad Men era, but probably stretching forward too. that sort of at the end of the year, we owe you something, right? We owe you a little chance to blow off some steam. We've worked you as hard as we possibly could. So this is going to be your opportunity. And and so, Rachel, I assume what, what did go with that was maybe a little bit more permission. Like, you know, if you had a little bit too much to drink, that wasn't necessarily going to be uh, going down on your permanent record. Yeah, and, and I think that's one of the things that's, really fraught about office parties, right? Is that the usual rules don't apply. So what rules do apply and who do they apply to? Um, and I think that's sort of the fun part of parties, right? This this sort of social, not necessarily inversion, but uh, sort of throwing out the usual hierarchy, throwing out the usual social order at the same time, that, you know, can open a whole lot of problems um, around exploitation and harassment. Um, and even short of that, there's the, there's the fact that then we go back to the order and everybody still sort of remembers what happened. So it's permissive, but how, how permissive? Right. One of the things you say in your piece, uh, you uh, quote Helen Gurley Brown, which I'm glad to see you do because I used to write for Cosmopolitan. Uh, and uh, and she talks about the fact that sort of in that earlier kind of male-dominated culture, or it was sort of maybe male-dominated uh, white-collar uh, office kind of manager people, maybe going to the party with uh, people, women who were un- under their supervision and stuff like that, that you know, if in fact it wasn't couples, if it was sort of the wives waiting at home, they were among the people who really started asking questions. Like, what the hell is my husband doing at this party? Yeah, um, she does. Her her general book on office etiquette is sort of this delightful time capsule. Um, you know, I don't know how true that is exactly, but certainly it hints at both you know, a sense of potentially in the best light, this sort of sense of like libertine fun, um, but also a sense of things that might happen and, you know, might have consequences. 
Right. So we should fast forward a little bit because we've just been through this era, era where, like everything else, if there was going to be a party, an office party, it was going to be a Zoom party. And, and in a way, that would seem to solve some of these complicated questions. Unless your name is Jeffrey Tubin, it's kind of hard to get in, uh, in a lot of trouble uh, at a Zoom party because at a certain point, you know, people aren't going to be able to, you know, I mean, if, you, if you're going to puke, you can just go off and do it by yourself or whatever it is that you've sort of managed to party yourself into. It's less visible, less visible to everybody. So um, I, I don't know. Did, did that solve a problem or did it just make people yearn to, to get down and be funky with their coworkers in the old way? I mean, I will say that I have not heard a lot of rave reviews of <laughs> Zoom office social events parties or happy hours or otherwise, um, you know, I, 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 it does seem like overall it's, it's certainly eliminated some problems and I, I'm positive that there are people who would be happy to never have an office party again. Um, let's just be done with it now that, you know, let's, we've seen, we don't need it. Let's not do it. Um, but I do think that, that one of the things you lose on zoom, um, and one of sort of the best potential things about parties is the sense of chance that that you might have a conversation you didn't intend to have or interact with someone you didn't you don't usually interact with. Um, and on Zoom, you know, a few notable examples aside, everything is so intentional, which is sort of at odds with like the whole idea of fun, I think. <laughs> Absolutely. I think Zoom is at odds with the idea of fun. Originally, yeah. Rachel Sugar has been ta- great to talk to you, the staff writer for Grub Street, New York Magazine's food blog. I quickly want to say something about this, too, because the one thing that occurred to me uh, reading Rachel's piece was I think something that needs more attention than it sometimes gets, gets is the goodbye party. You know, I mean, I think Caitlin was talking about this in one of the earlier segments, but how you leave anything is really, really important and how somebody leaves a thing. And so when people leave a company, I mean, right now it's been very hard. We've had some significant departures here where I work, and we haven't really been able to celebrate the work of that person as much as I would have liked to. Uh, and... I think I think you know if you see the movie Spotlight there's this very very sad little scene at the beginning where somebody's leaving after a long time at the Boston Globe and there's something so perfunctory about that party and the cake and people who don't go to it you just want to avoid all, avoid all of that. All right, we're going to end with one more conversation about meetings. Here we go. Very low maintenance. It's just um you know we're supposed to have a meeting and then we have a meeting. So let's 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 start by doing what we set out to do. Let's accomplish that. Let's have a meeting here at my office. We did attempt to have the meeting, and I did make the drive part. So the drive part, yeah, that, that I did yeah. do. The driving, so, you got so that, good. That's but, a little uh, out of balance now, because I did my drive. And, it's, but it's not out of balance, because you know you were driving and I was waiting. So, But the important thing is we didn't Well, the waiting, meet. there's a lot to do while you're waiting. There's nothing to do while you're driving. Tomorrow, if you want to drive to my office, that's, I'll be happy you can nice. keep me waiting for as long as you want. I, I know, but we made a plan. I, we I set understand, up, We set but, a plan. Yeah. We said, we'll meet at my office, right. and we'll have a meeting. Yes. That's the plan. That hasn't been accomplished. Let's no, accomplish but, that. That's all but I'm we saying. attempted to have the meeting, but it was aborted. We and we failed. Let's have that meeting. Let's have we, that we're, meeting. We're having that meeting right now. This we're is having... not a meeting about the show. This is a meeting about having a meeting. 